I guess for the members who read Scripture on Sunday mornings and are nervous about reading a long passage of Scripture are really jealous you didn't sign up for it today. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, as we continue our series through the Ten Commandments, or better yet, the Ten Words, the Decalogue, given to us uh, by the Holy Spirit through Moses uh, on the Mount Sinai to Israel originally, uh, even now for us to consider in light of Christ. Let me pray one more time and ask for God's help as we begin our study. Father, you're good. You're holy. You are righteous. You are just and lovely and perfect in all your ways. And we are indeed sinful, naturally rebellious, naturally wanting to stand over your word in judgment rather than to sit under it and let it judge us. And so we now ask through the power of Christ our Lord and the Spirit that you would guide us into truth. Your word is truth. Open our eyes and our hearts and our minds and our wills. Fix them on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And grow us and conform us into his image, we pray by the Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a world where violence and indeed death are common. Day in and day out, reports of death fill our social media timelines, regularly dominate the primary slots of international, national, and local daily news. Last night, just in conversation with Pastor Craig, he was mentioning to me recent stories where a student violently attacked an older teacher for taking a cell phone. Some high school students attacked a nine-year-old little girl on a school bus. And a man tried to uh, abduct a worker at her day job. Even this week I saw on social media a doctor posting a picture with a smile on her face of an instrument used to murder babies in the womb. The word itself, genocide, didn't even exist prior to the 20th century, but was invented to describe horrific carnage caused by events like the Holocaust and massive scale slaughters in Rwanda and Sudan, world wars, leaders like Hitler and Lenin and Stalin and Mao, one scholar argues with objective numbers have the blood of 175 million people on their hands. Pope John Paul II was correct. We live in a culture of death. Today we come to the sixth commandment, very short, only four words in the ESV, you shall not murder, only two words in the original Hebrew, and the first one is just uh, to negate, the word not. <laughs> so just really one word, commanding what we are not to do in the Ten Commandments. And in this particular command, this particular word, living in a culture of death like we do, one might first think when we come to the Sixth Commandment, this is perhaps the least controversial of the commandments. Sure, people may be offended by the first and second commandments and the, the fact that you must pledge exclusive uh, uh, allegiance to God, to Yahweh, no other gods, no idols. So sure, that's going to offend some folks. They may have no regard for honoring the name of the Lord in the third commandment or observing the rest the Lord gives in the fourth commandment. Some may even be upset and argue children shouldn't have to obey or honor their parents, but sh should instead be allowed to make their own decisions and value judgments even from the earliest of ages. But when it comes to the sixth commandment, at least at first glance, most people in most places believe murder is wrong. Even in our relativistic age, 
Most people quantify their beliefs by saying people should be able to do whatever they want, follow their hearts, as long as it doesn't hurt someone else. In addition, most people at first glance have no problem with the sixth commandment because at first reading they assume it's a command they have kept and is relatively easy to keep. But even in a short exposition like we will do today, we might find that the prohibitions of the sixth commandment are deeper and wider than we might first assume. Not only that, when Jesus takes us to the very heart of the matter, we might find that we're not nearly as innocent regarding violations of this commandment as we might first think. So let us get into our text and our sermon for today by first considering what the commandment explicitly forbids, and then secondly, by looking at how Jesus teaches and takes us to the heart of the matter, and finally, how Jesus fulfills and transforms the sixth commandment. So first, what does the sixth commandment forbid? You shall not murder. Now, it's really important that we understand what this command is and is not forbidding. If you grew up in church that maybe used the old King James Version, you would have been used to this uh, kind of the wording of this being thou shalt not kill. And there's a challenge with using that word. It's one that could uh, easily misunderstand actually what the commandment is saying. The ESV, therefore, and most other modern translations use the far more accurate term murder rather than kill. I say this because there's more than a half dozen terms in the original Hebrew text that can mean kill some of which are obviously not forbidden in the Sixth Commandment. Therefore, kill is not the best term for a modern English reader to understand what the text is actually saying. However, I'll only say more accurately because that which is forbidden by the word that is used while narrower than kill kill is a bit broader than the conception that we might have of murder, particularly premeditated murder. So let me try to clarify what the word actually means and what it is forbidding by pointing out uh, several types of killings that that it is clearly not forbidding, and then by pointing out some that it is clearly forbidding. So first, what is not prohibited by the Sixth Commandment? Well, first we know, according to the Old Testament, in the original context, Israel getting this law on Sinai, and and according to the civil laws, even that we'll continue to study as we get into later chapters in Exodus, Clearly, this commandment is not forbidding capital punishment. That is the civil law of the death penalty. So the chapters following the 10 words given on Sinai are full of case law, explaining how Israel is to apply this in a particular society. We read even in Exodus 21, verse 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. So this person in case law and civil law was to be put to death. This was a capital offense. This was, they were to to get the death penalty. So clearly in the sixth commandment, that's not being forbidden when immediately afterwards, that's the application that is given. Or Leviticus 24, 17, known as lex talionis, the punishment, uh, the kind of the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, that the the offense and the crime and the payment and the punishment should line up uh, to one another. Again, Leviticus 24, 17, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Jesus refers to this and corrects a misunderstanding of how it applies to us individually, and we'll look at that a bit later. But clearly, the uh, the sixth commandment did not forbid capital punishment. The second kind of killing it clearly does not forbid is self-defense. So Exodus 22, 2, sanctions self-defense against a thief who breaks into your home at night. We read Exodus 22, 2, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. So again, in case law for Israel, clearly there's demonstration of thief breaks in and there's self-defense. That's not a violation. So that's not the kind of killing that uh, the death, the murder that uh, the sixth commandment is forbidding. And then thirdly, we know that the sixth commandment's not forbidding that which uh, many have now argued and would put together a larger argument called just war. 
The Old Testament is full of sanctioned war. Obviously, I can't get into an entire just war theory uh, on this morning in this sermon. You'd be here much longer than you want to be. But my main goal is to point out primarily what is not being forbidden in this commandment. We know from Ecclesiastes 3.8, life in a broken world is full of violence and death and evil and therefore war. The author of Ecclesiastes says, there's a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. In the New Testament, we see that God has given this authority, this power of the sword, not to the church, not to Christians, but to civil authorities. So in Romans chapter 13, verse 4, we read from the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive this approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he's a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrong doer. So civil authorities put into place are to carry out justice in a society. As Christians, though, understanding that reality now in this side, the new covenant, we understand we war not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities of evil, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. In the spirit of Christ, by preaching the gospel and loving others as ourselves. So we do not believe in any kind of physical holy war that Christians ought to be initiating, engaging, and leading. Instead, we labor with prayer and love in preaching the gospel. As for just war, Brian Brian Chappell's quick summary, I'm sorry, Philip Riken's quick summary is helpful. Christians have long believed that a war is just only if it's waged by a legitimate government for a worthy cause with force proportional to the attack against men who are soldiers, not civilians. So again, just war is not forbidden by the sixth commandment. So what is? So if, if, if self-defense is not forbidden, if just war is not forbidden, if capital punishment is not forbidden, because we see it in the Old Testament lived out in Israel, what is clearly forbidden in this commandment? Well, first, what we would refer to in the way we would think about premeditated murder and voluntary manslaughter. So Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 11, we read, If anyone hates his brother and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into one of the cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. So premeditated murder and even voluntary intentional manslaughter, like Cain with Abel, like the violent rape and murder of the Levite's concubine as recorded in Judges 19 to 21, or as the murderous plan of Jezebel to kill Naboth for his vineyard as recorded in 1 Kings 21. These things clearly are forbidden by the sixth commandment. Premeditated murder, voluntary manslaughter is forbidden by the sixth commandment. But not merely premeditated murder and voluntary manslaughter. Also, we see that what we would call involuntary manslaughter or negligent homicide. So there's uh, something known uh, as the manslayer laws, and I'll, I'll try to just go through this pretty quickly and summarize quickly. But again, in our context, think about involuntary, accidental manslaughter or negligent homicide. The manslayer laws were to address one who killed another unintentionally and without being in enmity with the person. So the example that we see in Deuteronomy 19 is a man who they're in the woods. He's got an ax chopping down a tree. He hasn't secured the ax properly. The head of the ax flies off, kills his neighbor. So because of negligence, now someone is dead. Now, he could flee to a a city of refuge that was put in place by civil laws in Israel so that no one would avenge that death. And then he could be on trial and get a fair trial and hearing to find out was it an intentional uh, homicide or an unintentional homicide. So laws were given in passages like Exodus 21, 12 to 14, Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 19, and Joshua 20 on how this manslayer could flee and then have this trial and uh, 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 go before and find out what a just punishment for his crime was. 
Another example of negligent homicide happens in Deuteronomy 22.8. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. So in Israel, it's hot. You build a house, you, and you had to put protection around the outside of that roof where you would go to cool off so that no one would fall off and die. But clearly, there was, there was culpability. If you didn't do that and someone did fall off and die, there was a negligent homicide. You were, that is forbidden by, or by the sixth commandment. So notice we see even in Israel, there's an, a distinction between intentional and unintentional manslaughter for what just punishment looks like. But even an accidental death caused by negligence, again, made you culpable and therefore is forbidden by the sixth commandment. So today, negligent homicide, maybe the easiest way to think about it for us, would be if you're driving and own your phone and therefore have a wreck and kill someone, you're culpable for that death. That's a negligent homicide you've committed. That's a violation of the sixth commandment. So this is, this is what we're saying. So we're seeing the kind of death associated. What's, what's forbidden in the sixth commandment? To summarize, the sixth, sixth commandment forbids the unlawful killing of a legally innocent person for personal gain, revenge, or due to reckless neglect. Again, I'll just say the sixth commandment forbids the unlawful killing of a legally innocent person for personal gain, revenge, or due to reckless neglect. Now, before we move on to our next point, it's worth pointing out why this unlawful killing is forbidden. Why is the sixth commandment there? Why is murder such a serious deal? Why is it that taking an innocent life unlawfully is worthy of God's just judgment? Well, one thing we need to know is because human beings are made in the imago Dei, the image of God. So Genesis 1:27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. And so there's a, there's a unique reality that human beings are the crown and glory of the creation of God. All things in creation are valuable because our God made them. But humanity uniquely reflects and images forth the one who made them in his image. So every man, woman, boy, and girl has unique inherent dignity and value because they're made in the image of God. They're walking around like little mirrors pointing you to the God who made them. There's a unique glory in being a human being that God has uniquely give, given to human beings. This is why taking the life of another is such a big deal. God makes this connection abundantly clear in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made him in his own image. You be fruitful, multiply, and increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. Friends, God is the author of life. Sin brought death. Cain murders Abel, and we read the refrain in Genesis chapter 5. We start reading the genealogies. Usually you just skip over it. But if you read through the lines, it's he was born, dot, 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 and he died. Born and died. Born and died. Born and died. What is that saying? It's no, no. Sin and rebellion against God leads to death, and God is the author of life. Death is not the way it's meant to be. <laughs> death is anti-God. Like there's something uh, unveiling as we see. No, and human beings are created in the image of God to flourish and to multiply and to fill the earth, not to be killed. But sin brings death. And I just want to point out that this is one of the great problems with se the secular humanist ethic to not murder. So secular humanism is kind of the, the cultural stream and worldview we swim around in. Everybody would say, no, no, it's not right to kill people. But what's the grounding for that statement if you're a secular humanist? This problem is if there's, the secular humanism assumes there is no God. Well, if there is no God, there's no image of God that human beings are made in that image. 
That, then, that means every single human being doesn't have inherent dignity and worth and value. Every single human being then only has value in as much as the current populace says they have value. So if there are human beings suddenly that the current population says you're not valuable to us, they no longer have value if it's not grounded in something deeper. But we believe that every human being's dignity is grounded in something eternally deep, namely the image of God with intr- intrinsic value. That means the most weak and the most vulnerable, the infant in the womb, the disabled, the elderly, are all those who have the image of God and therefore have value and worth and dignity and they matter. Not the subjective values of the polis that suddenly decide who matters and who doesn't. Because if every life is made in the image of God and is meant to reflect the glorious God who made them in his image, then suddenly every life matters and there ought to be a pro-life ethic from womb to tomb. Every life matters. And what that tells us then is murder is erasing an image bearer that God artistically designed to bring glory and honor to his name. That he's the author of every single life. He knitted them together in every single mother's womb. He's the one who said, I wrote this human human into history. You dare not erase them. For he's the author of life. And you only can rebel against him to tell him, I want them erased. Therefore, taking a life that God did not give authority to take is not only, if you think about it, breaking the sixth commandment. It's also breaking the first and second commandment by refusing to worship God alone and instead bowing to an idol. It's also to break the third commandment because it takes his name in vain by killing one he created to bring his name glory. It's to break the fourth commandment, refusing to rest in his sovereign power to give life and death. It's to break the fifth commandment by rejecting authority he puts in place, the authority he gives to bring vengeance and bear the sword. It's to break the seventh commandment by committing spiritual adultery in your relationship with God by cheating on him by unlawfully killing an image bearer. It's to break the eighth commandment by stealing the life of another image bearer and the glory that image bearer was meant to bring to God. It's to break the ninth commandment by lying about the value and worth of human beings made in his image. It's to break the tenth commandment by coveting the authority that God alone has over life and death. The sixth commandment forbids the unlawful killing of a legally innocent person for personal gain, revenge, or due to reckless neglect. Now, it's very possible that most people in the room still feel clear right now. Most feel they've not broken this commandment. They may, you may disagree with some of what I'm saying and the implications of what I'm saying. You may disagree with the scriptures and what the scriptures are saying. But most of you are like, but I haven't broken this one. I'm good. Now, surely there are plenty in the room who've had or participated or funded an abortion. And so there may be conviction particularly. And we'll, we'll come and we'll talk about that in just a minute and look and offer where hope is to be found if that's you. Maybe there's some in the room who've committed violent crimes that have led to someone's death, and so you're particularly feeling convicted. But most people, I assume, in the room are assuming I'm still good. I'm clear. This is intense. It's weighty. It's hard. I'm not sure I agree with all the implications of it, but I'm personally okay by way of breaking this command. Maybe. But Jesus, as we've learned week in and week out in this study, reveals the sixth commandment, goes deeper and wider than we might first imagine. And as you assume, leaves none of us in the clear. Secondly, Jesus reveals the heart of the matter, anger and hatred. Jesus reveals the heart of the matter, anger and hatred. As a reminder, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount explicitly addressed his relationship to the law. 
We read in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, in heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot can pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never even enter the kingdom of heaven. So Christ didn't lower the standard as taught by the Pharisees. Instead, he deepened it to apply not only to external behavior, but to internal thoughts, emotions, and beliefs. He didn't come to abrogate the law, but to fulfill it. Because all of us, indeed, are guilty of breaking the law. He made this clear, particularly with connection to the sixth commandment, later in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus shows up and says those who have anger in their hearts are liable to the same judgment as the murderer. Murder is an external behavior that comes from an internally angry heart. Murders will be judged, so will the angry. Anger, when it's fully grown to its full and final end, wants vengeance. Anger, when fed and fed and fed, wants death. The fruit of murder grows out of the seed of anger. You may have never murdered someone before, but the seed that grows into the fruit of anger is in your heart, or into murder is in your heart. That seed of anger is there. It's present. And it's revealed itself in pre-murderous forms when you've slandered or cursed or gone off on other people. That's the evidence of that seed of anger in your heart that eventually, if you keep feeding it, wants to kill someone. And just like murder, the anger produces words out of your mouth, words that violate the dignity of the image of God in the one whom you're so angry at. James makes his connection. James chapter 3, verse 8. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Why is it so deadly? Why is it so poisonous? With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Not only anger, but hatred, the kind of hatred that leads to racism or sexism or classism. That's a seed in the heart of a murderer. John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Racism, hatred, sexism, classism, hating other human beings reveals a murderous heart. Jesus, again, referring to Leviticus 24, 17, says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your tunic, take your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh Uh-oh. There's the standard. Jesus says when you understand the law correctly, you understand you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You're listening to those scribes and Pharisees. They're intimidating you with how religious they are. I'm telling you, your righteousness has got to exceed the scribes and Pharisees. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Friends, is there any anger in your heart? Any hatred, any bitterness, any unforgiveness, any refusal to love your enemies, any desire to be the one who gets vengeance for yourself because you don't trust God to take care of it. Once Jesus shows us that the seed of murder is in all of our hearts, then I assume that those in the room who've had an abortion or been somehow involved in death of another, uh, death of another are not the only convicted people in the room. Now all of us at heart level are liable to the judgment of God for breaking the sixth commandment. So where is our hope found? How then shall we live? Who can be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect? I'm really glad you asked because this joint has been heavy to this point. Let's go to some good news. How Jesus fulfills and transforms the sixth commandment. Christ himself was betrayed by Judas. He's betrayed by Judas, one of his disciples, one of those he'd given his life to. Judas betrays him, grabs some guards, and comes up to arrest him. And Peter, oh, Peter, again, we studied through Matthew. We've enjoyed watching Peter and his passion. He gets fired up. The guards come to arrest him. What does Peter do? He slices off somebody's ear. He's like, all right, I'm ready to go to war. I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to battle. You're not taking my Messiah. You're not taking my Christ. Cuts off the ear. But then we read the Lord Jesus' response. Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and stuck struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think I can appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and did you not seize me? But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So dude shows up, his disciples betraying him. Peter cuts off an ear. Jesus, we learn from the other uh, gospel accounts, miraculously puts the ear back on. It's like, Peter, chill out. The scriptures are being fulfilled. <laughs> and that's not our path. That's not how we fight. That's not what we're after. I'm going to go do what I've come here to do, save sinners. I'm going to suffer and die for those who do not deserve to be suffered for or to be died for. The Holy Spirit, Jesus dies on the cross, he resurrects from the grave, he he ascends, and then he sends the Holy Spirit to empower his disciples to preach the gospel and continue the mission. And Peter himself, the one who cut off an ear, thinking, I'm going to go with violence, but now filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches. And do you know what he says in Acts chapter 2 as he preaches? He lets them know boldly, I'm going to tell you what you're guilty of. You're guilty of murder. Not just murder, but you murdered the very Son of God. Listen to him preach Acts 2, verse 23. This Jesus, 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So these men were guilty of breaking the sixth commandment, not only just by killing unlawfully an innocent person who did not deserve death, but also by doing killing the very author of life. Not only did they kill someone, they killed the son of God. So you got to imagine in this moment, like this is the worst kind of murder. Like all murder is evil, but you murdered the son of God. But we know even in their evil, they were fulfilling the redemptive plan of our gracious God. And we also know that not only did their guilt need to be dealt with, but our guilt did. For the murderous anger in our hearts deserve the same judgment from a holy God. You know what the worst thing about you and I is? Our sin led to the death of Jesus Christ. An innocent one had to die for us because of our sin against him. Our sin led to his death. And so even as Peter preached to those who literally crucified him, let all that, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And they responded the way we ought to respond when they heard this. They were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? We're guilty of breaking the sixth commandment, not only breaking the sixth commandment, but killing the very son of God in breaking the sixth commandment. What can you do? What, can a mur what hope does a murderer have? What, is, what hope does a person with a murderous heart, where do you find hope for that kind of evil? Is there any hope for racists? Is there any hope for those who've had abortions? Any hope for those who harbor hatred and anger against other people? Is there any hope for those who've committed violent acts and crime? Is there any hope? Verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for this promise is for you for your children for all who are far off even everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself how can a murderer or one with a murderous heart be saved by faith in the one they murdered this is the incredible news of the gospel the very one we put to death is the worst kind of offense of the sixth commandment is the one who says, I will forgive you even for this wicked crime. And he raises from the dead offering forgiveness, the author of life. He was slain that we might be saved. Even think of our king on the cross just before he died. What did he pray? Father, forgive them. They know what they do. They were literally killing the author of life and he's praying, God, forgive them. Our God has huge grace for huge sinners. Those who have murderous anger in their hearts, he can set you free from the penalty that anger deserves, but also from the power that anger has over you. He was murdered by sinners like us so that sinners like us might be forgiven through his death. He laid down his life that we might rise. He rose that we might live forever in Christ and in Christ alone. We are perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. Non-Christian friend, bring all of your sin. Bring all of your guilt, bring all of your shame, bring all of the wickedness of your heart and your thoughts and your desires and your actions in public and in private to King Jesus, the one who would die for his enemies in order to make them friends. We, we compel and beg and plead, run to Christ, the one who will set you free and forgive you of your sins. 
Don't turn a blind eye to that anger in your heart. It's deadly. It will lead you to hell. Turn to Christ, the one who will forgive it and transform it that you might love God and love others. Be set free from this sin in your heart. For either and no. This is the beauty of the gospel. Not only does it get you right with a holy God, it gives you power to forgive those who've sinned against you. Because here's what you know. My God is a God of vengeance. Either the sin they committed against you, they will pay for. God will take care of it in all eternity. Or he's already paid for on Calvary. Either way, anyone who's ever hurt you, ever destroyed you, their sin will be paid for in full one way or the other. Either with their own eternal life or with the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It will be paid for. So looking to Christ says, no, no, I'm, I'm forgiven of this anger in my heart, but also I can offer the forgiveness to this person who sinned against me, knowing vengeance will be served. My God will get justice. How does this transform the sixth commandment for followers of Christ? This is one hour one to spend the rest of our time. So as one who understands this gospel, that now through faith in Christ I can have my murderous heart forgiven, and thereby in the perfect death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, I've now obeyed the sixth commandment, not on my own, but because he fulfilled it for me perfectly. And he's now transformed my heart to love God and love others. What does it look like for the people of Christ to now live out the implications of this? I'm going to give two specific current cultural implications. Two specific challenges, primarily to King's Cross. And if you're not a member of King's Cross, we invite you to look to Christ and join us and jump in with us. But if you're a member of King's Cross, two primary implications that I want to challenge us. Number one, let us be a counterculture of love for each other in the church. Let us be a counterculture of love for each other in the church. This is what I mean. In a violent, murderous, divided, slanderous culture, we've been redeemed to live a new life in Christ. Because we've been redeemed, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 says things like this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may be give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's the kind of counterculture our world needs to see in the church. You're the kind of people when you sin against each other, you confess it and you ask for forgiveness and you grant forgiveness and the relationship is still good. There's something different about that kind of love that the world needs to see in the midst of a culture where we get on social media and you look through the, all the comments and responses and it's nothing but anger and slander. King's Cross, let us be the kind of people, Colossians 3.8, who put away all anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from our mouths. And instead, by the Spirit in Colossians 3.12, we put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience that we would bear with one another. And if we have a complaint against each other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We cannot give in to cancel culture. God is always able to save and transform even when we hold one another accountable in the church, even to the final extent of practicing church discipline, we do so with a heart of desiring restoration, not punishment. Even when we're doing discipline, we're doing it with a heart of love, saying, come back, you're running away, come back. Cancel culture refuses to offer grace. Cancel culture is anti-gospel. 
It's more in line with the kind of vengeance that violates the sixth commandment than it is with the gospel of God's loving and transforming grace in Christ. Now, we don't overlook sin, but we don't overlook the forgiving and transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And I've, so I hear stories all the time. I've heard some recently that have broken my heart of people removing people from a local church without restoration grace being offered. That's a violation of you shall not murder. We have grace and forgiveness. If somebody messes up and they just get kicked out immediately with no hope of restoration, that's a violation of the sixth commandment. I think removing sinners from a local church without restoration is wicked. It's cancel culture. It's all all, no gospel. And so I'll just say, if that's been your experience with church, we're sorry. There is restoration grace. We will call your sin, sin. And we will call the Savior, the Savior. And we'll tell you to flee from the one and to the other. And we'll do everything we can help along the way. This is what happens. So we can't succumb to cancel culture that immediately we find out something we don't like, somebody we just cut them off. That's law, no gospel. As serious as the sin is or was, we should have a squad of brothers and sisters walking through it, pursuing restoration. So first, let us be a counterculture of love for one another. Second challenge, let us be a counterculture of love from womb to tomb in a lost and dying world. Now, it's very clear. I'm not going to make all these long arguments, so I'm making some concluding application remarks, but it's very clear according to the entirety of Scripture that abortion, euthanasia, and suicide are clear violations of the Sixth Commandment. You can see Exodus 21 to 22 to 25 for clear ethical implications on abortion where people are charged for murdering the baby in the womb, not just the mother. But also we can just look at Psalm 139 and think about the most vulnerable in all three of those categories and read You formed my inward parts. You're the author. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. King's Cross, may we not let the political climate hijack these issues from the church by making them about merely political talking points. Let us be a counterculture of sacrificial love for the least of these in all three categories, from womb to tomb. Politicians will not use us for votes or power. Our king will use us to love a lost and dying world. John continues in 1 John 3, verse 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So you might read that and say, wait a minute, but that says brother. Who is my brother? There's a parable about that the Lord Jesus deals with in the Good Samaritan. Where people are trying to be real technical about who's my brother. And Jesus is like, your neighbor is your brother. (laughs) So yes, there's a higher call to love the church. But we're to love the world like like we love like our brothers and sisters, like family. We see people in need. We meet the need. This is the whole parable of the Good Samaritan. It's the whole point. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. Who's come to love and save sinners and rebels who are in great need. And so we're to live and love that way. We seek to serve moms and dads with unpled pregnancies. We adopt, we foster, we support, we pray, we encourage, we do whatever we can to help preserve life from womb to tomb. And we do it together as a faith family. We seek to care for the elderly by taking care of widows and even serving in our local retirement homes and facilities. We fight against euthanasia. God is sovereign over life. We are not. It's God's choice, not ours. It's up to him. He's the author of life. He's the one who ends it. 
So he makes the decision. Now, we're not talking about just to be careful with those who are, we're not talking about taking them off life support. That's a different conversation. We're saying we will not give a pill that ends life. That's murder. Now, there comes a time when we may have to remove medical devices in order to let be what it's going to be. But we are not those who pursue death. We seek to help minister, counsel, encourage, and point the depressed and the suicidal to emotional, mental, physical, and ultimately spiritual help. So those who are suicidal, we help them. That's what we do. Now, what do you need? How can we help? How can we encourage you? How can we find what you need to make you healthy? And we protect our children from being desensitized to death by monitoring their intake on the screens. I read one thing that said, according to the American Psychological Association, by the time the average child finishes elementary school, he or she will have watched 8,000 televised murders and 100,000 acts of violence on screen. Like our kids are being desensitized to death. They don't think it's a big deal. A lot of it's our fault. I, I heard a story even the other day of tribes in Africa that are training soldiers by letting them play first-person shooter video games. Children. So they give them alcohol, get them to play first-person shooter games, and then release them as soldiers. We've, we got to understand we love life. We hate death. We know the author of life. We know the redeemer of life. We know we're going to eternal life. And we know the hope to bring people with us. So let us labor and serve on behalf of life. We're not just against death. We're for life. Had a beautiful uh, picture of this counterculture happen on Friday morning. And I'll close with this. So our sister Gretel. Her body's being ravaged by cancer. And it's terrible. It's awful. She's moved back home to New Jersey with her family to spend her last days there, however long the Lord gives her. But on Friday morning, she came back to her apartment, and she needed the church to show up and help her, to pack up her stuff, to load up the U-Haul, and to send her back to New Jersey. And we did. There was about 20 folks, young and old, black and white, there to serve and help. And after we got done loading up the truck, we went together in her living room. We gathered to pray. And her father stood there weeping, thanking this church. Thanking this church for coming alongside her, for fighting for life, for serving and helping her. And then we prayed together. We read Romans chapter 8 at the very end, knowing that one day there'll be no more crying, there'll be no more death, there'll only be life forever with our God and his people. And until that day, we labor to make him known so that as many as he would have come to that day, come. And so we are those who even in that moment say, no, no, we stand in the face of death. We see the face of death, but we know eternal life and we have eternal hope. And we will bring this hope through the love of Christ to a lost and dying world. We'll do it by preaching gospel. We'll do it by displaying good deeds that commend our gospel. And any and all who are suffering and hurting and vulnerable will say, we love you and we care for you. We don't care what the world says about you. In this place with these people, the people of God, we love you and we offer you the love of God in Christ. Look to him. And by his spirit, we watch him take people from death to life. Even as we'll celebrate in baptism. Next week, Lord willing, and then on the 19th, demonstrating, hey, come join us as we make the God of life known. This is what the kind of people God is forming are like. May he make us those kind of people. Let's close in prayer. Father.